Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. I wonder what you guys think about that. I wonder if you believe that. Those are some really bold statements, right? Now, some people might think those are just thoughts of people who want to control the masses with religion. And so it's about power and freedom. So they think. Other people might think those are just thoughts of Christians who couldn't bear the thought of suffering and death. And so Christians created this God and this Jesus in order to have hope. And so Christianity is really about like trying to escape death and suffering and reality. But you know, as Christians, we say the words that I read earlier, cursed is the man who trusts in man, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. That's just simply the reality of life. That's that's from the Christian's point of view. The reality of life with God over us and God who is with us. And our passage this morning shows us, by way of example, frankly, that we are done for if we trust in man or ourselves for strength. But on the other hand, if we trust in the Lord, then we are blessed. After all, he is our creator and designer. The main point from today's sermon, if you're taking notes, the main point is find strength in God who never fails. Find strength in God who never fails, not man who eventually will. Pretty straightforward. Find strength in God who never fails, not man who eventually will. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel the book of 1 Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, and we are in chapters 29 and 30. If you find yourself sitting next to somebody who might not know their way around the Bibles, just uh, you can help them get there. That would be really useful. Uh, if you're using one of those black Bibles underneath the pew or underneath the uh, chairs, it's page 251. 251. Now, we are talking, we are walking through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and we are almost at its end. 1 Samuel tells of the account of God's people who had rejected God as king over them, and instead they wanted an earthly king, right? Right there is like the perfect example of what it looks like to trust in man, right? God was their king, but in the people's sin and in their impatience and in their selfishness and fear, they opted for a king just like all the other nations. They wanted a human right there who would lead them into battle and carry the sword and things like that. And God eventually judges them. And it's interesting, he actually gives them exactly what they want. The people eventually choose a man named Saul to be their first king. And he certainly fits all of the worldly criteria that they think will be good for them. He is a tall man. He is a handsome man. He is strong. He is a warrior. By all appearances, right, he fits the part of king over God's people. The problem, though, is that this king over God's people does not love God. So you see how that spells instant failure right there. The king over the people of God does not love God. That's like a babysitter. It's like a babysitter not caring at all about the parents of the children. That's like an employee working underneath a good and loving employer who always looks out for the benefit of the employee 
that employee not caring, that boss not caring about the company, the vision, the ultimate boss as they lead the people. It just doesn't work out. This lack of trust, this lack of love, and Saul's disobedience as he rejected God's word over and over and over again um, is a huge mark, a bad mark on Saul's leadership. And so God moves to judge Saul for his sin. And he basically declares to Saul, look, the kingdom will be stripped from you, and I'm going to give it to another man. A man after God's own heart, God says. And of course, as readers, we know exactly who this is. This is in Israel's second king. And his name is David. But then this transition between Saul to then David is rough. If you were to go home and just read all of 1 Samuel, which I encourage you to do this afternoon, or it's not going to take you very long. If you just read the chapter, Saul is completely obsessed with keeping the kingdom. And some of you guys know what this is like. You're obsessed with keeping that thing that you so want, but, but at the same time, that thing's out of reach. And you, do, you, do, you, you will do everything in your power to maintain that thing. Well, that's what Saul does. He even goes so far as to try and kill David personally, hurling spears at him. But not only that, though, where we are in the story here, Saul is on a hunt for David. At this point in time, David has 600 soldiers following him. Praise God. And Saul and his thousands are going off on this mission to try and kill David because David is a threat to Saul as he wants to keep on to his power and his praise. And that's where we pick up the account today. David here is at his lowest. He's at his lowest. This brings us to point number one depleted resources. Point number one, depleted resources. Picking up from the last chapter, David had to escape Saul, his own man, right? He's a fellow Israelite. And David has to run away from Saul and the, and the people of Israel because Saul wants to kill him. And he has to go into the land of the Philistines, his enemies. Just imagine that for a second there, needing to run away from the people who were supposed to care and love for you, but then having to escape to the land of the Philistines for safety. So there's, there's, you see here that there's three different people. You have Saul and the Israelites, David and his 600 men, and then you got the Philistines. The Philistines see David as kind of like mercenaries, right? So they're partnering together, so they think, to try and attack the Israelites. And of course, you see like David's in a pickle, right? He's not going to hurt his own men. He's expected to fight his own people. Well, of course he's not. David is seen... <clears throat> throughout the book of 1 Samuel, actually, to be a defender of God's people over and over and over again. So where Saul fails to defend the people, in steps David. So I think what's going on here is that as David and his men go down to the Philistines, the Philistines take him in, right? The Philistines think that he's a mercenary. They can team up. I think David has a plan here to eventually, when they get to Israel, to flip the script. If you're, if you're down, you know what I'm saying? to uh, attack the Philistines. Do you understand what's going on there? I think that's what's in David's mind here. He's a protector, Lord protector of the Israelites. And, he's, and he thinks, since he finds himself in this pickle, he's going to eventually fight against the Philistines. But his plan fails. And I want you to look at here, 29 verse 1. 29 verse 1. You could just go ahead and skim that as I talk briefly through it. He initially goes out with the Philistines, right? Heading toward Israel. Not good. But he has his plan, I think. But then the Philistines are actually suspicious of him. If you look at verse 3, right, the commanders of the Philistines, not the king who trusts David, the commanders say, who is this guy? He's an Israelite. Don't you see that when we get to battle, he's going to turn on us? Right? And so they say, they tell the king he needs to go home. And then eventually, that's exactly what happens. You look there in verse 4, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. 
Uh, and so they said to him, this is the king, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest he, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. And then you look down there in verse 6, right? The king says, he calls over David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve to you. David is actually distraught. If you look there at verse 8, David said to Ages, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go in and fight against the enemies of the Lord, the king? Now, keep in mind here, I think this is war, right? So he's using war tactics. He's, he uh, is kind of fooling Achish here. Um, the Philistines were haters of God's people. They were haters of God as well. Uh, look there in verse 10. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. He's telling him to get lost. So David set out with his, with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel basically to wage war against the Israelites. Can you imagine there his disappointment as the leader of the nation? The one who is to be king. He has on his mind, right? Just imagine the internal pressure. He has on his mind the deliverance of Israel. And if I'm right, his plan here is is foiled by the Philistines. The Philistines are going to attack his very own people. And so he has to walk all the way back, 60 miles if I remember correctly, back to this city. Perhaps their heads hung low, knowing that the Philistines are going to destroy his very own people. But it gets worse here. We're trying to enter into his suffering here, okay? That's what we're doing. It gets worse. Not only is he unable to protect his people out there at Israel, he's also unable to protect his people here at his very own home at the time. You look there in 30 verses 1 to 4. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, so they've, they've marched all the way home on the third day. It took them three days to do this. The Amalekites, enemies of God's people, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. That's their hometown. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Imagine walking to that city, encountering the wall of smoke as you head towards your hometown, as you see it, as you approach, right? You see that your homes have been burned to the ground. But worse than that, you would now wonder, did my family go up in flames as well? Here, we're trying to step into the situation. Imagine the, the, the distress here that he's experiencing here. How down exactly he is. How depleted of resources he is. Eventually, though, they realized that their families were not killed in a fire, but they were still nevertheless taken. Taken, of course, to be done whatever to, or to be sold off to whoever had the, hit, uh, had the highest bid. Now, imagine your children being taken away. What's their natural response there in 30 verse 4? Then David 
And the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Can you step into the mind of David, the leader, and think of the burden that he bore? When things go well, right, what's what's happening here? He becomes the object of the people's praise, right? David has killed his thousands, is what it says there in verse 5 of chapter 29. But then when things go bad, he becomes actually the object of their scorn, and he bears the blame. The people want to want to kill him. Look there at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because... All the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Friends, picture that. Picture yourself bearing that burden. You were the one who decided to go down to the Philistines. You were the one who decided to make raids against the people who were harassing Ziklag. You were the one who decided to destroy the Amalekites. And then now it seems like the Amalekites are probably taking revenge on your people burning all that you have and we're stealing your people. And now you have the desire or those people that you desire to protect. You realize you can't. Now he has to see his own soldiers grieve and suffer and weep over their own families and children. He's not able to protect Israel out there. He's not even able to protect his men right there, here. As he sees all of the families disappear, including his own and he, his friends, is just completely spent. As verse 6 says, he's in great distress. Friends, I wonder if you're visiting with us, church member, regular attender, or visitor, I wonder if you've ever felt like that, been in a situation where you just feel, frankly, completely spent. Knowing your suffering from your situation is completely outside of your control. A good amount of trials and suffering we respond and say, well, you know, we're going to make things happen for ourselves, right? All the stuff that maybe we think we can control, we just respond to it and say, well, we're just going to pull up our own bootstraps and just get to it. This is just what we do. And as we've covered in the previous week, that situation reveals so quickly what it is, right, that you have faith in, if that's you. If you've ever been in a situation that you thought you could control, right, what's your so-called first gear that you go to? What is it, that thing, that, that thing that you rely on? That thing that you totally depend on to deliver you from your junky situation to get out of distress. For Saul, that's actually himself. Cursed is the man who makes man his strength. That's Saul right here. He rejects God, right, and opts for his own wisdom. After trying over and over again to kill the man who is his threat, so he thinks, he then moves on, right? So he trusts in his own wisdom. I'm going to trust in my power, eliminate David, and therefore I will have a path to the throne forever. I will receive the praise of man forever. And then problem is solved, right? Pulling himself up with his own bootstraps. But then after that works, right? God is just providentially, you know, keeping Saul away from David so that David, God's chosen one, would actually become king. But when all, when all of his efforts, like, doesn't work, what does he do? He actually turns to the occult. He actually goes to, to call up the dead for wisdom, right? There again, right? He was relying on his own wisdom. God had said, don't go to the people who practice the occult, right? Don't do it. Not because necessarily it's going to fail, but because God is all there is ultimately. He is the king. But Saul clearly rejects these things. Now, if you're visiting with us, know that from the Christian point of view, from the Bible's point of view, 
which we think is truth. God is the only one strong enough to bear our hopes. And he desires us to sort of go to him first gear, you know what I mean? So think of this analogy. In many ways, we're all like, we're all like cars that have our check engine lights on, right? Bad news, generally speaking. And we have this check engine light on because of our own sin, right? God has made us to be in a relationship with him, but we rebelled against him. He was our loving ruler, our loving father. He designed for us the places in which we are to live. He drew the boundaries in which we are to live, just as all parents need to draw boundaries, like don't play with knives and stuff like that. Make sure you look both ways before you cross the street. It's just, it's just intuitive. God designs that for ourselves. But we basically say, I don't really care about you. We curse at God and say, I'm going to do things my own self, my own way, and I become a God unto myself, right? If you ever determined what to do and have rejected God, like that's, that's, that's basically what's being described here. We're all like cars that have our check engine light on, and we all need a diagnostic test. We all need a diagnostic test, right? A test needs to be run on our system. And, and once we do that, then we realize the errors that have gone on, the consequences of leaving our cars like this or ourselves like this. We have an assessment, and then we have a solution. we got a way forward. But here's the deal. From the Christian point of view, God, our maker, has designed this diagnostic assessment and solutions for the right way forward. He's designed all that to come from him, Right? He designed us as human beings made in our image to plug into him, so to speak, to receive this diagnostic. He is our creator. You can try and plug yourself in, your soul, so to speak, into something else. You could try and plug yourself into money.com or money magazine to tell and let them tell me what's wrong with me. You could do that. You could turn in, you could tune into Glamour magazine, right? And let them Tell me what's wrong with me and the right way forward. You could turn into politics. You could turn to professional coaches. You know, we could just multiply this on and on and on. But here's the deal. They are no substitute for God, your maker. We've all been designed by our maker, and we have been designed, again, being made in his image, as as Genesis chapter 1 says, to be in relationship with him. This also includes flourishing underneath his lordship flourishing underneath his love and also his good law. I love the way one fourth century Christian pastor put it. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. It's amazing there. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless, always seeking something always plugging into something until it finds rest in thee. Friend, you realize that you have been designed by God. Not only that, though, but you've been designed to find rest in God and in Christ, which is why Jesus comes along, right? When he comes, he comes not only convicting people of their sin, right? He preaches the gospel, but he reminds them to basically plug back into him, their creator. All things were made through Christ. All things were made for Christ. As Colossians says, which is why Jesus comes along and not only does he say you have sinned and rebelled, he also says, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, come find rest for your soul in me. He's calling us to plug back into him. And there we find this diagnostic, this right assessment, the right wisdom, solution, the assessment 
and the right way forward. What's interesting, in our sin, you realize this, in our sin, we actually don't want rest in God. It's the very nature of rebellion. We would rather not find rest in God. Instead, we insist that rest comes from something, somewhere else, right? But friends, you realize that in those moments, right, if we're insisting we're going to plug back in here, that's like taking a Formula One race car to go get it maintained by someone who only deals with tricycles. It, it just doesn't make sense, right? It might last for a little while, just a little while, right? It might last for a little while. But the more you neglect what's wrong or self-diagnose or self-treat, the worse and worse it gets. Can you imagine, right, taking a, a magnificent 16-cylinder, four-turboed Bugatti over a 1,000 horsepower to a tricycle dealer to go and get it tuned? That's us trying to plug back into the world insisting that money will take care of my problem, pleasure will take care of my problem, relationships will take care of my problem, alcohol will take care of my problem, even a marriage, even children. We can just go on and on and on. Of course, even the, the car analogy fails because there we're talking about machines, right? A machine is relatively easy to fix. It's a machine and a computer. A new one's going to come out, and then more and then, and then more and then more. Here, friends, you realize we're talking about your human soul. Your very own cells with all of its complications. You think a Bugatti is complicated? It's not complicated. Computer's not complicated. The human soul is the most complicated thing in, in the world. And so God here is reminding us to plug back into him. But friends, you realize that the wonderful news here in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that despite our rejection of God and insistence to plug in something else, God sends Jesus, his eternal son, to make the diagnostic plain and simple right before all of us. That's why God the Eternal Son shows up here and walks among us and tells us exactly what's wrong. It's because, like, at times we are that dense. But in Christ, it is as plain as it can get. He sends Jesus Christ to provide that assessment and the solution to getting right with God. He sends Christ to, to fix what we broke. So God sees the sin, our sin, and he sends a Savior. God knew that we were unrighteous, so he sent Christ to be our righteousness as he lived the perfect life that we should have. God knew that we were facing the sentence of death, eternal death, and hell even, the Bible says, because of our sin against the eternal God. And so he sends Jesus to die on the cross where he bore the wrath that we deserve. He died where we deserve to die. And those who repent of their sins and believe on him, we now know forgiveness, right standing, adoption into his family, all by his grace and his mercy, not by any work of our own, that salvation is all by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So you see why Christians say, cursed is the man who makes man his strength. Who else are we going to go to? There's no answer in anyone else except Jesus Christ. The answer finally is God. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Why is that? Because God is our designer. Saul here, going back to Saul, he chose to find his rest elsewhere. He actually, he actually chose to find his rest amongst the wicked. That's where we last left him, right? He was having this feast, this meal, this last meal almost, with this woman who deals with the occult. David, though, where does he go for his strength? This brings us to point number two. Where does David go for his strength? He goes to God and his infinite resources. Point number two, God and his infinite resources. Now look there 
at verse 4 again and just feel that pain. I mean, my family, we were up at a, a funeral, sad funeral situation this la- over the last few days of a five-year-old who had passed away. Um, so, you know, you're thinking about this type of grief and just magnify it there. Verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Look there at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But, but, despite all of that junk that's going on in his life, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. That's hope for us, friends, right there. David, despite all that's going on, he strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Here David is distressed, he is depleted. But yet we see him drawing resources from the Lord and his word. He strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. That is his first cure. How does he strengthen himself in the Lord? Now, you might think based on this language that really it seems to be all about David, right? He is strengthening himself. Some people might even be confused depending on what kind of background you come from. You might think that Christianity or trusting in God is like wielding God as your talisman. You know, you go away into a corner, say Jesus' name three times, and you come back, and then you're you're ready to face the world. <clears throat> That's actually entirely not what is going on here. In terms of how he strengthened himself in the Lord, I think we actually have a pretty good idea of what, what uh, is going on here from the book of 1 Samuel. And it tells us how David was strengthened in the past. So uh, if you guys remember, the previous time, David was uh, once again on like the brink of despair, Saul is out to kill him. Nowhere, he has nowhere else to go. But Jonathan, David's friend, goes to meet him. I want you to turn over to chapter 23. Go ahead and turn there. You look what happens in 23. Let's go ahead and look at 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horash, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash. And what does it say there? Strengthened his hand in God. It's the same language there. Right? So within 1 Samuel, we see what's going on here. How was his hand strengthened by Jonathan? Well, continue reading there. And Jonathan said to him, verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. He shall be, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. He is not naming it and claiming it here. That is not what's going on. Okay? He's not declaring anything here. Actually, what's going on is Saul, Jonathan is just repeating a promise that, that God had already given. God had already said that David was going to be king. And so here, Jonathan's coming along and just reminding him of God and his promises. And that's how his hand is strengthened there. It's strengthened in God and his promises. And then you look there at chapter 25 here. You have another example. We're trying to figure out what does it mean uh, for his hand to be strengthened. Uh, this is the story of David and Abigail. David is about to give in to anger, right? He's a human being. He's tempted to sin. He's tempted to give in to anger just like Saul. But then God sends this woman named Abigail. And what does she say? Look at 25 verses 28 and 29. Actually, just look at look at 29, 25, verse 29. She says to him, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. 
in the care of the Lord your God. And the lies of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now here she almost works in such a way to prophesy almost to David. Of course, when she when he hears him when he hears her speaking about God slinging out his enemies like the hollow of a sling, there he's thinking about probably David and Goliath, right? His own interaction there. And of course, what is it that gave him victory? Was it his skill at wielding uh, the stone? Ultimately, it was God. Yahweh was the one. The Lord God Almighty was the one who delivered him there. That's how he is strengthened. Abigail here simply reminds him of God and his promises. So you realize, friends, that after here, David, after having gone through wave after wave of suffering, again, here we just see a little bit of it. Here, after going going through wave of wave after suffering, he is ministered to by God's word. Even as he faces all of this, what has he learned to do? This wasn't his first gear all the time, if you guys remember that, right? He is legitimately tempted. He wants to go out and return evil for evil in chapter 25, right? He's a human being, just like the rest of us. But what does what has he learned? He has learned to go to God and his word. He's learned to seek comfort and solace in the Lord. His Lord. Did you notice that? In chapter 30 there? It's specific there. It's, it's, it's ownership here. It's, it's personal, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Friends, remember that this book contrasts Saul and his rejection of God with David and his heart for God. Saul rejects God and his word, but David here, he strengthens himself in the Lord and his steadfast love. Now, this is a bit of a repeat, but I want you to turn over to Psalm 59. And here we actually have some of the poems or the songs that David wrote while he was going through some of this difficulty. How cool is that, right? We have his experiences sort of penned down, and we know that he goes back to God and his word. Um, in this one in this one Psalm, Psalm 59, if you look there at the uh, basically the title, uh, this is on the occasion when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So this concerns the general events that's taking place here in 1 Samuel. But you look there as he goes to God and his word. Look there in verse 10. He says, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God in his steadfast love. That's who God is, right? He will meet me. What does that mean? It means that God who, who has established his covenant with his people is not going to abandon his people, but he is always faithful to his people. And so he here he goes to God and his word. Now turn over to Psalm 25. Turn over to Psalm 25. One author does believe that it is on an occasion like this such deep suffering that moved David to write something like Psalm 25. And look over at 16 and 17. Look what he says here. Look how he prays to God. Keep in mind, right, he's praying to the God who, God who is over him, God who is with him, God of steadfast love who will meet me. And he says, turn to me, God, and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress. Christian, you realize that this is your God? 
the God of steadfast love, the God of tender mercies, the God who is with us, the God who will meet us, meet us with all of His strength and infinite resources in our weakness. And believe it or not, it is when we are depleted, right? It's when we struggle that we see just how strong He is. Isn't that amazing? When we struggle, we see just how strong He is. In our struggle, we therefore learn to draw on Him all that He is and all of His infinite resources. This is how we as Christians learn to hold fast to Jesus Christ. So that when we think and feel that God is far off, right? So some of you guys might be thinking even right now that God is far off. Far off. Maybe you're wrestling with some of your own sin and the junk that you yourself wrestle with personally. Maybe you think that something you've done will keep you from the love of God and from Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're going through some circumstance, as many of you are, where you feel like God has somehow, or God has somehow lost you out of his sight, as if he is not a good and wise shepherd. Whatever destitution you may be feeling in your circumstance, or even as you look at your own soul, here this encourages us to hold fast to Jesus. Listen to the words of God. And if you are suffering, I pray that these words would, in fact, minister to you. Hebrews 4.14 says to those who may feel like they can't get close to God. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because of Jesus is, because of who he is, and because of what he's done on the cross, because where he has gone and what he's accomplished in salvation, he says there, let us hold fast our confession that he is Lord. Hebrews 4.16, what does it say there? Let us then, with confidence there. So Christian, if you're looking for confidence, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Beautiful promises, aren't they? Promises for you, Christian, if Jesus is your Lord. Given God has given us so much in Christ, right? The greatest thing, the Son of God. Romans 8 says, certainly he will give us everything else for eternal salvation with him. Going back to David and this reflex of first gear, so to speak. You guys realize here, as we seek to apply this, you guys realize that this reflex of going to God as first gear this discipline, this desire to seek strength in Jesus is actually not easy or natural because of our sin. And just as there is development in David, right? There's this life cycle of sanctification in David. He's growing. So there is going to be this development in us. Regarding this development of this discipline and desire, you want to, Christian, you want to fan into flame those embers of the love of God so that those embers would then turn into bonfires of the soul for Christ. Right? There's a development in David. There's going to be development in us. How do we develop ourselves by God's power, by God's grace, relying on Jesus? Here we need to fan, in, fan those embers of love of God so that they would become bonfires of the soul. So here's one thing, one ember, right, that we can fan into flames so that we would learn to go to God as first gear. Uh, one of them is corporate worship, right, church attendance, believe it or not. Church attendance is one of those embers that we could fan into flame that would help us worship God even in the midst of 
living in this sinful world and all the difficulties that come with it. Did you know that church attendance is important to God? That God actually commands his people to gather together? It's almost like God the Father, if you have a, if you have a family, or even if you have like roommates, you know, maybe occasionally you would want to get together so that you could get on the same page. And if you have responsibilities, maybe you want to lay out that spread on that table so that other people would be fed. Right? I take great joy in that. I love dry aging my own steaks and stuff. I love laying it out there, letting people enjoy it. Friends, you realize that that's what happens at church? I know some of you guys might have the, the opinion of like, oh, the church thing is just something that we do. Sunday morning, we're going to come to church. But actually, while that might be the case on some people's in some people's mindset here, God intends that his people be fed with the greatest feast of all. And so God, in, this, in the service, in services all over, gospel preaching churches, he's laying out the spread, so to speak, so that we would be fed, even if you don't appreciate the 40 days plus dry age steak, the singing, the praying, the reading of scripture, the baptism that we're going to experience later on, the preaching of the word, all of those things. So here at church, at the church gathering here, right, the corporate church gathering, which God commands us, right? He commands us to gather together. Hebrews 10, 25. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but gather together. Here at church, we sing the Bible. So if you're visiting, you're wondering, like, what is it that people do at church? We sing the Bible as God's word. We hear the Bible being read. We pray the Bible in our prayers, right? That's why David earlier on, he read Psalm, or sorry, he read Ephesians and then prayed a prayer according to that. Uh, scripture passage we we preach the bible which is what's going on right now and we even so-called see the bible take effect in people's lives that leads to baptism and the lord's supper right that's what god commands his churches to do baptism and the lord's supper and baptism we're going to see later on we see a public testimony where god has united that person to jesus just as Christ went down into the grave and died to sin, so that person has died to sin in Jesus. Just as that person was, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so all those who are united with Jesus Christ are raised to new life. And so they begin learning to put away sin and love Jesus all the more. Certainly not easy, but that is nevertheless what has happened in the soul of the person who goes on to get baptized. Lord's Supper, there God gathers all of his people together into churches who cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is through the breaking and eating of the bread and the pouring and drinking of the fruit of the vine where we testify, yes, it is through his shed blood and torn body that we are saved. Of course, it, the thing itself doesn't save, but we are to remember Christ who saved. So let me ask you, church members, if you're a member of First Baptist Church, do you prioritize church? Do you prioritize church? Are you fanning into flame what you know is good for you? I know it almost sounds kind of silly because I'm talking to church attendees. But do you fan into flame what you know is good for you? Right? God himself has given you church, the church, corporate gathering of the church, so that you would grow in your love for God. You know how you can tell that you prioritize? It's not only by attending, but just look at Saturday night, right? What do you guys do on Saturday night? What do you prioritize on Saturday night? Is it entertainment and comfort? Which, of course, is not bad in and of itself. Is it, yes, I can get off work and I'm going to binge watch whatever show I can watch till 3 a.m. I can watch my sports games that I've recorded into the wee hours of the morning. Is it leisure, right? 
Maybe you so prioritize throughout the week, you're going to prioritize on Saturday hanging out with your friends till 2, 3, 4 a.m. Even though you know that on Sunday morning you're worthless. You need to drink 40 ounces of coffee just to stay awake. Even something as seemingly little as that can tell just how much you actually prioritize Sunday mornings, not just by attending. Some might be happy. I've never spoken to you here. I'm not pointing anybody out, but some might be happy to attend but sleep through all the service. So what you want to do is think, how actually, how actually am I prioritizing the Sunday gathering where we get to hear God's word to God's people so that we would be fed even though we might not appreciate it in the moment. God intends that his people be encouraged by gathering together to hear his word. So the question is, do you take advantage of it? Do you cultivate your desire for the word in effort to strengthen yourself in God so that it would be first gear? All we talk about here on Sunday mornings, we talk about the word of God. We're going to talk about God and his promises to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we do. When we cultivate our desire for God through this practice, he strengthens us. We learn to go to God for strength, for Christ's likeness. Going back to our passage here, as David strengthens himself in the Lord here, we see actually that God delivers him. Look there at verse uh, 7 of chapter 30. Just go ahead and scan those verses there. God actually delivers him. David strengthens himself in the Lord and inquires of God. Now, remember there, Saul goes and inquires of a medium, someone who can speak for the dead. But here, David, he strengthens himself in God and then inquires of God. He seeks, so he speaks God to speak with him, which is a common way that God did in the Old Testament. What should we do there? Pursue the Amalekites? This is 7 to 10. Pursue the Amalekites or not? God says, go ahead and pursue them. You will overtake them. So there, by God's grace, what happens? By God's sovereign providence, they find an abandoned Amalekite uh, slave, and he leads them to where they are. He leads them to the Amalekites. And look there at 16 to 20, 16 to 20. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad, their enemies, were spread about all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Right? These are the Amalekites here. And David struck the Amalekites down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. We spoke about there why the issue of two wives. If you want to learn more, you can listen to the previous sermon. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And though he is in a very difficult situation, the resolve here helps us anticipate hope that God will actually deliver. David rescues his people, gets all the people back. Not only that, though, he takes all of the spoils and in a wonderful example of godliness, he spreads about all the spoils with the people of Judah even, right? He's protecting them. Not only his own men, but his people. Can you imagine there what goes on through the leader's mind? There's victory, but there's so much more than victory, right? For the leader. There's also relief. There's also relief. Not only because his people don't want to stone him anymore, but because his people, whom he shepherds, receive their families back. 
And so for the leader in that position, right, there's great relief, celebration, and joy. In verses 21 to 31, there you see that he, he spreads out the spoils, and David takes care of God's people. As we move to a conclusion, and also further apply this passage to ourselves, once again, we go back to Saul and David as our example. You have Saul, the man who trusts in himself, who is cursed. And then we have David, a man who is blessed, who trusts in God. In the contrast of characters here between Saul and David, we have a great analogy presented to us regarding what happens for those who trust in man and makes man their strength, and those who trust in God and have God as their strength. I want you to turn over to Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah. Basically, open your Bible right to the middle. You'll get to Isaiah. If you turn right, keep on turning right, slowly you'll get to Jeremiah chapter 17. Here we have in principle, in Jeremiah 17, what Saul and David show us. According to Jeremiah 17, you look there at verse 5, it says there, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Of course, you see there, cursed is the man, that's Saul. Blessed is the man, that's David, who trusts in God. Of course, this makes entire sense, isn't it? Once again, we get our diagnostics, we get our assessment, we get the solution from God himself and his wisdom. To Christians, Christ is all there is. And God in his word tells us not merely or most importantly how to live, but tells us most importantly how to get back into right relationship with your creator. Friends, if you're visiting with us for the very first time and you're exploring this Christianity here, we're not creating things to control the masses. We're not saying, we're not here just simply to believe and hope because life is hard, though it certainly is. We say here, look, go to God because God is all there is, right? We need to be plugged into our creator and baker who knows all the intricacies of your soul and your sufferings and your struggles. Turn from your sin, Jesus says, and you will be saved. You will know forgiveness of your sin, right standing before God, adoption into his family. And friends, Jesus says that you will know rest for your soul. God himself has made a way here. He himself clears away all of the wrath that stands against us on account of his love. He is just, certainly, but he is also merciful, gracious, and loving. And so he sends Jesus. And he calls all to turn from your sin and be saved. How awesome is that? If you want to learn more about how to strengthen yourself in the Lord with his word, uh, at 9.15, starting two weeks from today, we're going to be looking at this class from 9.15 to like 10.10. 10. 
on how to go to the Word of God for strength, right? We actually believe that this is, in fact, God's Word to His human beings. And so it's like uh, trying to go back to, as one children's Bible says, the Bible says, the children's Bible says that these letters are like God's love letters to His people. Uh, but, in, you know, we as adults understand that. God has given us these letters that we might read them over and over again. That we might carefully hide his word in our hearts. That we might know more about who he is. Like I'm sure you might do with emails or voicemails or letters yourself. So this, the class that we're going to go through, How People Change, just simply helps us go back to the word of God. And even in the midst of struggles and difficulties, helps us see what is it that we fail to believe about God and his promises. And then how is it that we can turn back to the gospel to see how his word meets us and his strength meets us in our time of need. And like David, as we learn to do this in first gear, certainly not always, but as we learn to do this in this difficult world, we learn again that God is present and we, in fact, can trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as many of us enjoy at the right time giving promises and encouraging our loved ones to bank on them, helping them know that they can rely on us, Lord, we thank you that you are like that to an infinite degree. You make promises like all who come to me will be saved. And you fulfill them in Jesus Christ. And you want us to, according to your word, in Jesus Christ, be reminded that you are faithful and that you never change. Help us see, Lord, that you are worthy of us throwing our entire lives on and banking our entire lives on. And we pray to you that you would help us see how in our own sin we have thrown you off of your own throne, sought to rely on ourselves or other things here in this world, Help us see that, Lord, that is an offense to you. Many of us here would not dare do that to our parents or our other loved ones or our guardians, but yet, Lord, why is it that we do this so frequently with you? Help us trust in you. Help us see that you are faithful. Help us turn from our sin and believe on you again as you are, in fact, the Lord, our maker. In your name we pray, amen.